was embittered, and I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's the word of God. You may be seated. Chances are, if you have come in the last 20 years or so uh, to my office to talk over uh, some difficulties in life, uh, maybe some doubts, uh, maybe some struggles that you're having in life, one of the things that I asked you to do was to memorize Psalm 73, verses 21 through 28. Now, we're going to look at the entire psalm tonight, but we're going to, uh, to, to be breaking it down and looking at it from the, uh, from the standpoint of what it has to say about doubt that comes into the life of believers. And uh, I want us to begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump right into this text. Father, we recognize that we live in a fallen world. It's not the way that you made it. It's not the way that you want it to be. But we take responsibility for this world knowing a a degree of fallenness and a a degree of of destructiveness in in its nature, Father, because of our rebellion so long ago. We also recognize, Father, that that being fallen in, in, in our nature, that there are, are times of, of struggle that although we have been brought into Your kingdom and our sin has been, has been cleansed, uh, every, every stain has been removed, there are still uh, temptations and there are still those moments of doubt that we have in this life. And we pray to, to rightly handle those doubts in such a way that they move us forward in our faith and not backward. That our doubts can be tools that are used by You, Father, and by Your Word and by Your Spirit to, 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 to galvanize our faith and to strengthen it rather than to diminish it and weaken it. And so to this end, we pray as we always pray, Father, in the name of Your Son, Jesus, that You will give us eyes to see and ears to hear this text as it lays open before us. It's rich, Father, and in so many different levels. And we ask that You that you speak to us and to our soul and to our mind and heart through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. World's longest engagement was between Octavio Guillen and Adriana Martinez from Mexico. Octavio popped the question in 1902 when they were both 15 years old. Adriana apparently said yes, but she had some doubts. 
They finally got married in 1969 when they were both 82 years old. It took uh, (laughs) took her 67 years to kind of work through those doubts. The moral of that story is that some doubts have to be dealt with sooner rather than later. According to Amazon, and many of you have the Kindle, and a lot of you, like my wife, do a lot of reading and a lot of your your uh, your electronic day-to-day work and, and stuff on a Kindle. According to Amazon, the most highlighted passage in all books read on Kindle, this goes uh, all the way up to November 2014, and this particular passage was highlighted twice as often as any other passage in any other book read on Kindle all the way up through November 2014. It came from the book Catching Fire which is uh, part of that trilogy, the second book in the trilogy, The Hunger Games. And the line in that book is this, and I quote, because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. End of quote. Now, a, a, fella, a professor by the name of Mark Schiffman um, has, has thought a lot about that and why that particular passage and, and it's not even a, a, a tremendously significant passage as the story unfolds in the book. But that passage has really resonated with young people who do the reading of, this, of that particular book on their Kindle to the point that they have highlighted that passage twice as many times as any other passage that has been highlighted. And he writes in, a, in, in, in some, uh, some stuff he's published on, on, on youth and, and young people in faith, He says, it's easy to see why The Hunger Games is a novel of a generation. He goes on to write that the reason that so many young people highlight that particular passage is that they are trying to figure out how to deal with uncertainties and doubts about their future. He goes on to talk about how in in the story of The Hunger Games you have this young woman, and you know the story better than I do, uh, having only seen the movies but not read the book, but part of the gist of, of... the one character's place in the book is that she's always being skilled and armored up for a future that may not exist. And that really resonates with with young people in certain generations in the United States. Doubt is a very real experience in life. And there are different kinds of responses to it. If you think about doubt in the secular world, uh, there's, there's a part of the secular culture that sees doubt as a demonstration of sophistication. That if you're skeptical, if, you're, if you doubt, if, if you're questioning, that that's a sign of sophistication, that you're not naive, but that you're somehow sophisticated in your thinking about life's experiences. In the religious world, doubts are seen as trouble. They're seen as a really bad thing. It's that when, when you're a parent and your children maybe begin to talk to you about their doubts, for a lot of parents, that is a very, very scary, frightening situation. Ironically, though, the Bible has a more complex and nuanced view of doubt. In the Bible, doubt is neither all good or all bad. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, the first example is a, a negative one. It's the report of the spies in Numbers chapter 13. You know the story. The people have come out of, out of captivity in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have gone for 9 to 12 months to the foot of Mount Sinai. They have been formed into a nation. They've been given the regulations of how they are to live as a people in the presence of God. They've been given the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. They've been given God's presence and all of the symbols of, of, of His presence. They're going to see every day and at night. 
And now they have come to southern Palestine. They're at Kadesh Barnea, Numbers chapter 13. And the gateway to the promised land is open to them. They're on the verge of going into the land that God promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. For some reason, they decide that they're going to send spies into the land. The spies go up into the land. They come back. They give this really positive report that the land does indeed flow with milk and honey. The problem is we are grasshoppers in the the eyes of the giants that inhabit that land. Now, these are, are the people who have seen all of God's goodness. They've seen His love. They've seen His power. They've seen His deep compassion. They have already experienced His forgiveness. They have, have seen how He has destroyed their enemies and has protected them and provided for them. And now, although they have a positive report of the land, everything that God said about the land is true. His, his Word that describes the land is believable, but His Word of promise is not. And they doubt God's power. They doubt God's intent. They doubt God's trustworthiness. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's where doubt turns south. But then the uh, second example comes from John chapter 20, and it's Doubting Thomas, uh, sort of an unfortunate uh, nickname for Thomas. After the crucifixion, Thomas has not yet been in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, although some of his colleagues, his comrades, have the other, other apostles. And he basically tells them when they say, yes, it's true, he has risen, he says, I'm not going to believe that until I put my fingers, put my hands in those wounds. And then one day, you know the rest of the story, John chapter 20, they're in this room, Jesus comes through the wall, he looks, goes straight over to Thomas, and he says, hey Thomas, I don't want you to doubt anymore, I want you to put your fingers in these wounds, go ahead and do it. And Thomas does not do it, but he falls down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Now here's the thing about doubt. Doubt can move you forward or it can move you backward in your faith. There's a, a, a Christian writer, the, the guy's pushing about 90 now and not writing very much these days, but back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, very, very prolific writer, a guy by the name of uh, Frederick Beekner, very important book uh, where he basically was helping to define uh, religious words for people who were not very religious. It was sort of a, a theological dictionary of sorts. And his, his definition of doubt, I've, I've always uh, appreciated. He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Now, this is where we come to, to Psalm 73, where a person of faith comes into doubt about God and about what he believes about God and about his place in the world and his place in God's plan. We don't really know a lot about the author of Psalm 73, this fellow named Asaph. He wrote Psalm 73, among others. We don't really know the specifics of the situation in which he found himself, which prompted him to write this psalm where he's struggling with doubt. But there are some very important lessons for us to learn, and it begins with his description of a doubt. Asaph uses a metaphor to, uh, to, des- to describe his experience of doubt. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that, that you can do quite easily is just to say, I have doubts. I'm doubting right now. You can be very straightforward. The language, the communication can be very straightforward, to the point, very concise, very articulate. I am having doubts. And yet, Asaph gives us a metaphor. Why in the world do we have, and this is for the English teachers out there, why do we have metaphors rather than straightforward language in Lent? 
It's because metaphors cause us to slow down and to stop and to begin to imagine and to process what it is. We begin to build this picture that's based in the metaphor, the description of whatever the the problem is or the, the love is or whatever it might be that the author is describing. He uses a metaphor for us to stop and to begin to process what is going on. And so Asaph uses a metaphor in verse 2. He says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. I want you to circle those words stumbling and slipped in your Bibles. To stumble, and we're talking physically here, to stumble physically means that you lose your balance. You hit your foot on something when you're walking or while you're running so that you almost fall down, you, you, you hit the dirt. The information that your brain is sending to your foot, telling it where to go next, is somehow short-circuited, and you don't know where to put your foot down next. And when you slip, it means that somehow you've, you've lost your traction. This last, uh, this last Friday, Lloyd Dunn and I are in the Guadalupe uh, uh, doing some fly fishing, and we've, we've got our waders on, and the waders have nice traction on the bottom of them, but the river is running so fast, and it's running so, so deep in some places that even though I was standing beside the, the bank, all of a sudden the river and its power and momentum completely pushed me off of my feet, and I have to grab the roots of the cypress tree to keep from heading downstream a little bit. When you slip, you've lost that traction. Your orientation is messed up. You, you might end up somewhere different from where you started. And the danger of stumbling and slipping is that there might be an injury, even an injury that you don't recover from. It's like a car that spins on ice. Now, having grown up uh, in my beginning driving years up in the, the East Coast outside of Washington, D.C., we, we learned how to drive on, on asphalt, clean asphalt, uh, as much as we learned how to drive on ice. Driving on ice and snow was just part of the gig when you were learning to drive up in Maryland near the D.C., uh, the, 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 Washington, the city of Washington, D.C. And so we had to learn how to drive on that ice. And not a few times, there were, you know, we're driving down the road very, very slowly, and the next thing you know, you begin to spin, and you begin to lose traction. And if you don't get control and know how to steer out of it, you might end up in a ditch. Now, spiritually speaking, that's what it means physically. To stumble spiritually means to be uncertain where to come down safely. And there's a danger of slipping and losing your traction in faith. Doubt, as a short definition, is an experience of uncertainty. Now, it's important to note that we really don't know, again, anything about Asaph, except that he wrote some of the Psalms, which means that he was at least a person of some spiritual understanding, that there was some spiritual discernment in him, that God was using him to record uh, these, these Psalms. And yet he experienced as a spiritual person, some degree of doubt. Now, while he is writing a piece of Scripture that we consider to be inspired by God's Holy Spirit, Asaph's foot nearly slips. Which means that Asaph became uncertain. It means that Asaph lost his traction or was in danger of losing his traction while he's writing this psalm. And so one of the things that that teaches us right off the bat is that no one is immune from experiencing doubts. But here's the thing. Doubts, again, can, can open the door to the place where we experience a deeper faith if we let the doubt drive us to the truth. Now, how do doubts deepen faith? How does this work? 
In Psalm 73, Asaph is beginning to wrestle with something that he sees happening in the world. In verses 1 through 3, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the what? Arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the, say it, wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Uh, a, A couple of things just open up here. All of us in the ancient world, in, in a primitive culture, in ancient culture, modern cultures, everyone has a worldview or some kind of grid through which he looks to make sense of the world. This is what we find in verse 1. He says, God is really good to those who are pure in heart. That is, devoted to God. That His, his theology, his worldview is, is that God is good to people that love Him. That, that love that love God, that are devoted to God, that are committed to God. If you have a pure heart, God is good to you. You will prosper. That's the world of a- the worldview of Asaph, and a lot of people like him. That's their theology. But then we read verse 3, where Asaph sees the great lives of the wicked. There's no pain in their death. Bodies are not starved, but well-nourished. They are not troubled like other men. To Asaph, when he, when he thinks and sees and observes what's going on around him, it looks like the wicked have a pretty good life. But they don't deserve it, according to his theology. They don't deserve it. They're not pure in heart. And beginning in about verse 4 and going to the middle of the psalm, he basically begins to outline all of the things that he sees wrong in their lives. Pride is like a necklace around their neck. You know, one of the things that my life my wife likes to wear is a necklace and 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 i like to buy them for her and she loves to wear them and you know lots of times when i'm standing there beside her we'll go someplace and somebody will see her coming and say oh i love that necklace or they'll they'll see something that that she's wearing around her neck and they go, oh where did you get that i'd like to get one too you know the the necklace is one of the first things you see when somebody comes at you in, in the way that they're dressed and the way that they you know they present themselves you see that necklace and the pride of these people that, that Asaph is observing in the world around him, their pride is obvious. They're not somebody that really puts God in high regard. Their pride, their arrogance is what you see. It's like a necklace. You can't miss it. He says also in verse 6 that they are covered in violence like clothing. You know, back in the, the 70s, my father liked to wear those, uh, those, those coveralls. They would have kind of that half belt around him. And you basically unzip it, step into it, zip it up, and you're covered up. And it was kind of an easy thing to wear. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad we don't have them today. But Asaph is saying that that they put on clothing the same way that they put on violence. They're just there's that violence is is just something that you obviously see about them the colors of their garment the the length of their garment the style of the garment the fabric of the garment it everything that you see about those garments it's like seeing meanness and violence and prejudice and racism and biases and hostility and ugliness about them he says they have a fertile imagination for violence and meanness they are completely in disrespect by the way they live of god so now you see the tension right God is supposed to be running things in the world. Then why does it look like the wicked are running the world? 
He's not the only one to deal with this. Habakkuk, in the first chapter, that little old tiny book, the first chapter is so important. Habakkuk says, you know, God, when I look around, all I see is evil. Why do you make me look at evil all day long? He says at the end of chapter 1, I thought you were holy. Even today, when we think about it, if you're egotistical and exploitative, uh, ruthless, manipulative, you can win the day every day. You can make a lot of money if that describes you. Verse 12, he says, they prospered. And Asaph sees the very thing that we see, and he's bothered by it. How can the God who is good allow all of this wicked stuff to happen? How is a God who is good and all-knowing and all-powerful allowing this kind of wickedness to prosper right under his nose? Now, for Asaph, this is more than just amusing in, in a private moment. It, it's more than just kind of thinking to himself, wow, this really doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll get to it later on when I have time to think about it. No, it's, it's, it, this experience is visceral. It's visceral rather than merely an intellectual debate that's going on in his mind. He says, I've been working hard at keeping the faith, but it seems to be in vain. My life is afflicted, Asaph says. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. He said, you know, all my life I've tried to do the right thing. And I didn't want it to be just this ethical behavioral thing. I wanted it to go deep, 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 deep into my very heart. I wanted my heart to be pure. Guess what? I lost. That's in vain. I washed my hands in innocence. That was vain. We drop down to verse 14. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. You know what Asaph is struggling with? Asaph is struggling with his theology and his worldview not sinking up. He is the good man who suffers innocently. In verse 16 he says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And here is where the doubt is born between the way we think reality is supposed to work and what it is we experience. And Asaph is beginning to doubt. Why? His theology is not matching his reality. That's something that we all face. And we must avoid a mistake that a lot of people make. And that is to think that, hey, you know what? Doubt, that's just intellect. Doubt exists simultaneously in intellect and experience. It's going on in our head and it's going on in our heart. Doubt exists simultaneously in intellect and experience. Now, we, we should never downplay the power of personal experiences when it comes to doubts. Thinking that doubts are only intellectual. That all we need to do is get the facts straight and we need a little bit more information to put in the box, crank out a new truth that we believe and everything's solved. I'll give you an example. And that, that step out of the world of religion just to show how this works, I think, in every part of life. And that step out of religion and into dating relationships. Years ago, I was doing some premarital counseling for a couple. They were not members of this church. I'm not even sure they went. I can't really remember so long ago. I don't think that they were really attending any church, but they were coming to me to do some premarital counseling before they got married. It was his first marriage. It was her second marriage. It was going great guns. We were having a good time going through the material, talking, talking, honesty, honesty. It was all really great until we got to an issue of trust 
And then an issue began to arise that didn't make sense in the conversation. Everything was going great, and then all of a sudden, this really weird red flag jumped up. And I kept saying, sweetheart, I, I don't think you're being honest here. And she would say things like, well, you, you know, I don't want to make it. I don't think you're being honest. This is a big deal. What is the big deal? And I kept saying it over. You're not being honest. You're not being honest. You're not being honest. And to the point that the fiance began to say, honey, something's up here. What in the world is going on? What? You, be honest. You can tell me anything. And then it came out. She married her sweetheart, who she thought was a great, honest guy. Cheated on her multiple times. She forgave and forgave and forgave. Took him back, took him back, took him back. She tried to be the perfect wife. Did everything in her power. She followed everybody's advice. She did everything. She bent over backwards, even broke her back. Bending over backwards to try to accommodate this guy. And finally, he leaves her. And she thought she had chosen a guy beyond reproach. And he wasn't. And she tried to do everything she could in her power to make that marriage work. Her words, to be the perfect wife. I would do anything. I told him that. And the marriage still failed. And now she is doubting her own ability to choose a good guy and having doubts about the second marriage and her own ability to discern and to select and to choose. Example two. This one is religious. More than, uh, this was probably about 16, 17 years ago, uh, helping coach a, a kid's wrestling team up in Kansas. One night, talking to one of the parents, a dad, as we were getting some things ready for a tournament, conversation turned to religion. I never knew it, but this guy at one time in his life had been very religious, but now he was, you know, his, his confession, you know, would never darken the doors. I asked why. He struggled with the death of his grandmother, who was the most religious person, the kindest person, most loving person, patient, faithful, religious person he knew. She had died a, a, a lingering, painful, suffering, grievous death to cancer. And he began to doubt that God is good and loving if He has the power to heal a sickness that this all-knowing God has knowledge of. Now, for both of these, the doubts were not just intellectual. These doubts were, were visceral and gut-wrenching and emotional experiences. And that's why overcoming doubts is a process. It is to be a faith-deepening process, but it is a process. Circle that word. It is a process to overcome the doubts. You have to deal with the emotions that powerfully influence the way that we think. But you also have to ponder, and you have to reflect, and you have to think, and you have to contemplate. So Asaph begins to do that. We go to verses 16 and 17. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the what? The sanctuary of what? The sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein. Question. What typically is the response of a person of faith who begins to have doubts about God? Not to go into the sanctuary of God, but to stay away from it. Which is the opposite of what Asaph does. The typical response is to stop showing up to worship. Which, by the way, when somebody has been coming and coming and coming and consistent and continual in their, in their attend, continuous in their attendance, 
when they begin to miss over and over and over, it's a red flag that something is up. And here's the crux of it. Doubt is partly intellectual, right? It is. There's, there's something that's not syncing up in the way that we perceive the world and the way that we think the world should exist. It is partly intellectual. But now, we're not going to where the Word of God is preached and explained in sermons and Bible classes and sung in songs. But doubt is not all intellectual. It's also partly emotional. So in not going to the sanctuary of God, to going to church... You're now not going to where the presence of God is celebrated and people are rejoicing in the blessings that God has given them that week and in in their life. Now, Asaph is pondering. He's thinking about this. He's, He's wondering. He's contemplating, but he's also going to worship. He's going to worship, but he's not just allowing the songs and the experience of other people singing. To, to, to be the remedy. He's going to worship and he's also thinking. And that's the turning point. Verse 17. Then I, what? Perceived. It's a new learning. A new understanding is beginning to take hold of him. How? He has put himself in a place where God is real. Which is the first step in the process of diminishing doubts. He goes to the places where faith is blessed. One of the great unknown truths is how uh, doubts can trigger a deeper faith. Doubts can, can be a catalyst to a faith that is so much more robust and dynamic and informed. Notice how this happens to Asaph. Asaph believes that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Why? Because God is running the universe. But... The opposite is his observation and experience, and he's bothered by it. His foot is about to slip. He's, he's, he's stumbling. So he goes to church in the honesty of his doubts, and in the process, he comes out with this bigger view of God and a grander view of God and a, a more profound, significant view of God and relationship with God and God's presence in his world. Now notice, at the beginning... He says that his feet, my feet, God, are beginning to slip. I'm I'm stumbling here. But by the time you get to near the end of the psalm, he says it's the wicked rich who are really on that slippery place. Look at verse 18. Surely you set them in a slippery place. You cast them down to destruction. How they, they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. So he goes to the place where faith is blessed but he also recognizes the difference in the objects of faith. As he's going and and, and experiencing worship and thinking, and as he's thinking and pondering and experiencing worship, he's going to a place where God is celebrated, where the, the, the knowledge of God is being magnified in people's hearts. They're talking about the richness of His grace. They're talking about His providence, His His providing every day, His power. He's talking about His love, His steadfast love that never ceases. But His mercies are new every morning. Asaph is going to a place where he is he is his mind is being is being pressed into the truths of the reality of God in his experience with with humans' experience of that reality in the world. And it's here that he recognizes in verse 11 something really important. They say, how does God know? The wicked rich, the ones that, whose bodies are flourishing because they're not starving. They have more money and more food than they know what to do with. 
How does God know the ones who are prospering even though they're wicked and and doing it in, in unjust ways? How does God know, really, anything that I'm doing? And is there knowledge with the Most High God? Does God even know anything? The wicked, Asaph sees, are betting the house that there's no God. The wicked, he sees, are betting that there is no God in the universe. And that's why they're doing what they're doing. You see, Asaph understands it takes faith to believe in God. It also takes a certain kind of faith to not believe in God. What the rich have done is to put their faith in the stuff. To put their, their faith in the fact that there is no judgment, that there is no moral standard, that there is not a, a, a God who is in control of the universe and will put all things right at some point in time in history. And it's here when he sees that the, the rich, the wicked rich, are putting their faith in, in the fact that there is no God, that he recognizes the beauty of the God that he worships. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. What is that an image of? Who takes you by your right hand? Your Father. With your counsel you will guide me. And afterwards in one of the few Psalms that, that, that recognize the resurrection in the Old Testament and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What he's saying here is that in all of the things that I experience and taste and feel and, and possess in this life, there is no treasure that compares to you, God. There's nothing in heaven on earth that I desire except you. You are my treasure. They can take everything away from me, but they can never take you. And that way, they never take my treasure. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then I I think one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Psalms. But as for me, now this is the guy who says, God is good to those that are pure in heart. But I'm stumbling right now and my faith is slipping. And I don't have traction right now because I believe that God is good to those that are faithful to Him. But when I look around, it's the wicked that are really getting ahead in the world. In this process of, 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 of dealing with his doubts, Asaph says, I, I see all of this other. But as for me, the nearness of God, that's my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Asaph recognizes at a much deeper deeper level the treasure that God really is. A treasure that is much greater than the kind that mildews or rust or gets stolen from time to time. And if God is your treasure, that's something that can never be taken from you. The wicked are the ones that have put their feet on something slippery. 
And Asaph sees in the phrase, receive me to glory, a piece of the future resurrection. And Asaph is realizing that God is more beautiful than anything else. And Asaph is realizing that God is doing something beautiful in his life. I'll give you a lame, lame, lame example. Uh, you, you know, my wife and I, we are lovers of the German Shepherd dog. We, we just love those dogs. Uh, probably the only dogs we will ever own for the rest of our lives. Smart dogs, intelligent dogs, uh, brave dogs, courageous dogs, beautiful dogs. We, we just, I like all dogs, don't get me wrong. But the German Shepherd's kind of uh, special to us. And uh, one that we had a couple of years ago, uh, got her when she was just a puppy. She was about, um, uh, we got her late in her, her puppy days. We got her when she was about six months old. And we took this dog home and we're loving on this dog. And this dog is a little suspicious because it doesn't know us. And I decided to put a leash on this dog. You would have thought that I was trying to kill this dog. This dog starts screaming and whining. I mean, dogs can really cry. I don't know if you know that or not. But dogs can cry. Dogs try to talk to human beings. They love us. They want to talk to us. And this dog is saying, what in the world are you doing to me? You're torturing me. This dog is flipping and flopping and doing flips in the air and screaming and crying. The neighbors, I was afraid they were going to call the SPCA on me. And, and we just we just were patient with this dog, and this dog is going, this does not fit my worldview. My worldview is that I'm free to roam and to run everywhere, to do what I want to do. And now, Master, you're putting a leash on me? What are you trying to do, kill me? But we kept working with the dog and working with the dog. And as the dog got older and the dog began to be with us, and we fed it and we watered it and we washed it and we loved it and we petted it. And we, Ellen says, I spoil these dogs. She's probably right. And we spoiled this dog. This dog's view of me got deeper and deeper and, and wider and wider and, and greater and greater and more significant to the point that when I would get that leash, that dog would not run and that dog would not cry and that dog would not, would not pitch a fit and it wouldn't think that I was trying to kill it, but the dog would come running over to me because what did a leash meant mean? Walk. Master is taking me on a walk. And this dog would jump up and down and we'd have to calm it down because all of a sudden now the leash means, means celebration. Now how that's a lame example is that it, we all have our doubts about God. But if we follow the steps of Asaph, and that is to think deeply about God and to go to the places where people's faith really celebrated, where people's faith in, in worship is, is done in such a way that you can't help but, but, but think about what it is that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 when, you know, when the unbeliever, the person that doesn't really know God, comes into our assemblies and sees the way that we worship, what do they do? They fall down and they say, God is in this place. And you think, and you go to that place of worship, and you go to that place of worship, and you think, and you ponder, and you contemplate. And you begin to think deeply about God. And to think deeply about the world around you and God's truths and His promises that Steve Linscombe taught us this morning in our family's class and did such a wonderful job. And you think about those promises. In fact, he had a great idea. He said we should all walk around with the list of the top 50 promises that God gives us in this day. And you begin to carry that around and you think about it and you worship and all of a sudden you realize, you begin to realize that in this world, God reveals Himself in such a way through His Word and through His Son and through His Spirit that He is real. 
real enough to worship and real enough to believe in and real enough to celebrate. And we begin to have this picture of God that is grander and grander and grander that begins to override those doubts as those doubts begin to be answered and those gaps in the logic and the information begin to be filled in. And we say with Asaph, this world has fallen, and, 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 but God is still in control. And what that means is that even though I may be surrounded by things that at least in this moment might not look just, for me, the nearness of God is my good. Dave's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that we can minister to you and help you in your faith, then what we're going to do is ask you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we, we sing this song, Shine On Us. Let's stand and sing. Lord, let Your light, light of Your face, shine on